these pictures of enslaved people are the primarily well-dressed studio portraits. They don't show enslaved people visibly dissenting from their position. And, and so what I talk about is how we see in the 1840s and 1850s, slaveholders taking up what is a neutral visual technology and, and warping it and turning it towards particular political ends. I call this dynamic in particular, a quiet habit of domination. Meet Matt Foxamato, an assistant professor at the University of Idaho. In spring 2019, Matt published a book on the relationship between slavery and photography a technological advancement that was developed and flourished in the two decades preceding the Civil War. His book draws on rare photographs from the middle of the 19th century, along with archival letters, to investigate how photography affected how slavery and freedom were recorded, imagined, and contested. The book is titled Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. Welcome, everyone, to The Vandal Theory. Hi everyone, my name is Lee Cooper, and I'm a science writer here at U of I and your host for The Vandal Theory, a podcast about science and research from the University of Idaho. Throughout the second season of the podcast, we're going to meet U of I researchers and learn about the questions they're trying to answer, the problems they want to solve, and what intrigues them about their research. Matt joined me to talk about his new book. Well, hey Matt, thanks for coming in today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Can you introduce yourself for everyone? Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. My name is Matt Fox Amato. I'm an assistant professor of history here at the University of Idaho, and I teach American history, colonial and 19th century, as well as the history of visual culture and the history of race and ethnicity. So you just put out a book, and it's actually called Exposing Slavery. It's a story of the relationship between photography and slavery. And I just really wanted to delve into that with you. First off, how did you get involved in this? What brought this in onto your radar? Yeah, there's a story about that. I was really interested in questions about images of suffering. What do images of suffering do in the world? And I had been reading Susan Sontag's work. She's a great theorist of photography. And in her work, she's really invested in trying to understand whether images of suffering promote empathy which might even lead to some further form of political engagement, or whether they simply produce a kind of detachment and a sort of compassion fatigue as people view these images in the news. And I wanted to understand those questions about images of suffering and empathy at the origins of photography. Photography was born in 1839, pretty much simultaneously in Britain and France, and it comes quickly to America's shores. And in thinking about this, I was aware of certain images that abolitionists had produced. Probably the one viewers know best is called The Scourged Back. It's of a fugitive slave who, in 1863, enters Union Army lines and soon thereafter poses uh, turning his scarred back towards the camera. Uh, I was aware as well of Frederick Douglass's love of photography. Frederick Douglass, we now know, was the most photographed person in 19th century America. I had and so no I idea. initially, yeah, it's kind of amazing <laughs> to realize that. And so I initially envisioned a project that was about abolitionist image making, really about how a social movement took up a new visual technology. Yet, and this happens so often for historians. When I started to do my research, I found evidence that didn't fit that social movement uh, history framework. 
I started uh, to find, uh, and I'm here, I'm thinking especially of photographs that were taken not by abolitionists, but enslavers in the South in the 1840s and 1850s of enslaved people. I started to find these photographs as I began my research. And I said, huh, that's really interesting. And this really hadn't been investigated before as a distinct cultural phenomenon. And because of that, I started to reevaluate what photography was politically in this moment, not simply something for abolitionists to use, but rather a kind of cultural middle ground that was used by various political forces. So as a result, my book uh, still looks at how abolitionists use photography, but I also look at how slaveholders use photography. I look at how enslaved people too used photography and i end by looking at how union soldiers use photography so it's a study that really goes from 1839 the birth of photography to 1865 the end of the civil war thanks i think maybe the the point to jump in here is is let's kind of work through some of these different groups and how they were able to use photography to tell the story that they wanted told so often we look at photography and think that it captures the truth of the moment mm-hmm. but in fact photography like any other art form or, or even journalistic framework can show or not show different things that we may want to hide or expose. Let's start one with slaveholders. How did they end up using photography to tell their story? Yeah. And before I get there, I really like your point about photography, not simply offering a transparent view onto the world, but rather understanding all photographs as the products of choices being made by people. And so enslavers, slaveholders, are using photography from the 1840s, its first decade, onwards. And they're taking, they're commissioning um, studio photographs of enslaved people in a few different ways. You see enslaved people posing on their own. You see enslaved people, particularly enslaved women, oftentimes uh, holding white children. And sometimes you see enslaved people holding um, the tools of their trades. I write about one enslaved man named Hector who was a boatman. One of his tasks was to bring his enslaver the mail, and so he's posing with the oar. And these are done uh, both in urban studios as well as they're they're um, purchased from itinerant photographers who are kind of traveling about the South in wagons, on boats even. And so what's interesting about these photographs is not only what they show, but how slaveholders use them. So we see them attaching photographs to fugitive want ads. We also see slaveholders circulating these photographs, sending these photographs to each other, exchanging them with each other. So one story I write about is Edward J. Pringle. Edward J. Pringle comes from a slaveholding family in Charleston. And in the 1850s, uh, he's in San Francisco practicing law. And one day, Edward Pringle writes back to his mom in Charleston. He says, Mom, thanks so much for sending me your photograph. It looks just like you. And thanks especially for sending me the photograph of Mac. Mac was an enslaved butler in the Pringle's Charleston townhome. Edward Pringle goes on. He writes a full paragraph about Mac's image. He said, He says, Mac is better dressed than anyone in California. I keep his photograph on my desk in my office so that people can come in and I show it to them when they come in. What a great representation of the institution this is. And so he's talking about um, slavery there. 
And so this is an instance of early photographic propaganda, really. When you put all of this together, and I should add that these pictures of enslaved people are they're primarily well-dressed studio portraits. They don't show enslaved people visibly dissenting from their position. And, and so what I talk about is how we see in the 1840s and 1850s slaveholders taking up what is a neutral visual technology and and warping it and turning it towards particular political ends. I call this dynamic in particular a quiet habit of domination. Man, I can't even imagine. Like, I mean, so he had this picture on his desk and usually we reserve that for, you know, our family, our friends. But that's not what you're saying. That's not the uh, emotion behind why he had the the picture there. Probably, it's it's hard to get at his emotions. True, true. But one of the things, or one one of the contexts you can understand these photographs within is a pro-slavery argument that, and it's oftentimes positioned against what abolitionists are saying, that slavery is not the commodification of human beings, which in fact it was. Um, They would argue that slavery was building up broader black and white families. And so in many ways, keeping these photographs and showing them to other people was a gesture towards Hmm. the argument about the, the, the familial and benevolent nature they are arguing about slavery. So let's then turn to the the slaves themselves. I mean, I, I knew there had been pictures of slaves. You see so often, as you said, you know, the, the woman holding the child. But you're saying that they actually went and took their own pictures. The slaves went and took their own pictures. And that became like an actual, like a, a big thing. Yeah. And this part of my research really blew my mind. There had been some really good scholarship before I wrote this dissertation that turned into a book about the internal economy of slaves. We know that while slaves were dramatically poor as a social class, some had small amounts of cash and they were using it to participate in the Southern marketplace. And as it turns out, they were purchasing photographs too. Not all slaves, surely, but some. And they, like slaveholders, were purchasing purchasing them from both studios and itinerants. I read, uh, used the records of one itinerant photographer named John Baer, who's traveling around the eastern seaboard, basically selling photographs in the 1840s. And as he tells us, in the late 1840s, he stops off at Winchester, Virginia. And he says, I put out my sign for $1.50, and people there had never seen photographs that were so cheap. And I charged a dollar for enslaved people. And he designated Friday for the day when slave when enslaved people would come and get their portraits taken. And according to John Barry, he says they came in droves on Friday to get their portraits. And what's really compelling about enslaved people's Uh, adoption of photography is how they are using it, I argue, as a means of endurance to withstand the social separations, the forced social separations of slavery. Because, and we're talking about the antebellum era here, while the international slave trade isn't taking place, at least legally anymore, um, there's a a really um, powerful um, internal slave trade that's moving slavery westwards, basically. And so photography offers enslaved people, enslaved families, a means of remembering loved ones who have been sold away, as well as for fugitives who want to remember their loved ones back in the South. The idea behind it just you know, kind of stops you in your track when you think about what that single photo would mean yeah. to somebody like that. Yes. 
now you're talking about fugitive slaves moving up. So let's let's move north a little bit. Yeah. You started, you know, thinking about uh, abolitionists uh, um, using photography to to help sell their ideas, basically. Yeah. And when I went into my work on the abolitionists, I initially thought they were going to be using photography kind of from the get-go to sway the masses, as they had done with other cultural forums, print culture, for instance, magazines. Uh, yeah, you, you'd printed like a couple, I don't know if cartoons are the right word, but like, you know, sketches. Yes. Yeah. And what I realized quickly was photography in the first two or three decades was was kind of a poor tool for abolitionists to produce the sorts of images they had been producing for the longest time. Exposure times were too long. Cameras were too clunky for them to actually go south and produce scenes of violence or scenes at an auction. So it was a bad tool to show the south, but it was actually a really good tool for abolitionists to show themselves. So photography becomes a way for abolitionists to visualize their movement as it's happening, as well as to um, create and build social bonds. It really becomes a kind of internal tool for abolitionists to build their movement. So I talk about how abolitionists are using it to picture themselves and how they're circulating images amongst themselves, uh, even on the Underground Railroad. And that was another really surprising part of my research. I'll tell you another story here. And this is a story about Lear Green. Lear Green was a fugitive slave who escaped from Baltimore. Uh, she actually escaped uh, inside a, a crate. And when she got to Philadelphia, and this is, I'm taking this from the records of William Still, who was a black abolitionist. When she got to Philadelphia, one of the things they did was basically take a reenactment photograph of her getting out of the crate. Okay. Oh, wow. A little bit later on in my research, I was uh, looking through the diary of Charlotte Fortin, uh, who is another abolitionist, and she talks about how, this is in the 1850s, she went to a photograph studio in Philadelphia, and while she was there, someone said, uh, look at this. It's a photograph of a fugitive woman um, getting out of a box. And Charlotte Fortin says, oh, my gosh, she couldn't believe it. She And she talks about it in her diary at length, how uh, enraged this made her feel about the institution of slavery. Uh, and so there you have an instance of this wasn't a photograph. This wasn't an image that was circulated widely, but kind of within uh, social circles. People are circulating these images uh, um, amongst themselves as a means of building solidarity. I mean, so the abolitionists are taking all these pictures. You said that Frederick Douglass took more pictures than than most. Yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, it really does put the, I mean, I know it's a silly phrase, but put a face to the name. That's such a new idea, considering everything else had always been, you know, these paintings of, you know, whoever was in charge, presidents, vice presidents and everything. And now almost anybody can have their picture taken. Yeah, and that's one of the remarkable things about photography is the way it democratizes portraiture. It's just it's it's far quicker and far cheaper to get a photograph made. And so you see people who couldn't get a portrait, a painted portrait made, getting their photograph taken. And for abolitionists, you know, there are various reasons why they love photography. Douglas loves it for amongst other reasons. He sees it as a means of of fighting anti-black racism. He thinks that it's going to be an important tool for African-Americans to show um, images that are going to counteract the kind of racial caricature in antebellum America. 
more broadly, I think abolitionists um, really uh, with photography understood that um, that it was important for a movement to be visible to itself. Mm. And that's why it's not only about uh, picturing oneself, it's about sharing images with each other, about keeping images of each other. And in the same way that you see social movements today using social media like Facebook and Instagram to um, um, show themselves and to show action happening. So lastly, you did some work with Union soldiers. Can you go into some detail on how the uh, Union soldiers were shown? Uh, yeah. And this is this is the kind of last chapter of my book. And it looks at how photography was used in Union Army camps, which are these really uh, remarkable places. They become these kind of haphazard biracial communities as you get Union soldiers. I'm really talking about white Union soldiers here. Um, Union soldiers heading south. Enslaved people um, heading north and they're entering, well, oftentimes north, they're entering Union Army camps. Then you have photographers kind of milling about. And one of the things that really struck me is in, in the photographs, you see a pattern. You see uh, you see black people, especially black men, posing in a variety of de degraded forms. So they are um, sometimes sitting beneath white soldiers. They are sometimes... Um, standing with a teapot or something along those lines, ready to serve white soldiers, um, lying on the ground. And those were really interesting to me. And they hadn't really been studied to any substantial degree. And what I argue is this is this is a moment in which the future of race in America is very uncertain, particularly as it becomes more clear that slavery is going to fall by the ends of the war. And for white soldiers, you, you get many who uh, both are either uh, anti-slavery or become anti-slavery during the war, yet they are uh, from, from anxious to adamantly opposed to social equality. So it is a way for them to concretize race relations, white-black race relations, as slavery is about to fall. So I'll give you an example. I read about one Union soldier named Charles II, who is writing constantly. But he's a white Union soldier. He's writing constantly back to his wife. And one day he talks about how he basically had an enslaved person who ha who had been um, uh, working and living um, in the camp uh, basically come out of the tent and sit down in front of his feet, and they got their photograph taken. Um, and he thinks this is really important. And so this is one example of many in which you see white soldiers trying to um, instill a vision of racial hierarchy as slavery is ending. Is there any one photo that, you know, that either through the collection process or what you learned about it as, as you were studying it that really kind of hit home with you? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll go back to the studio photographs of enslaved people. There's a photograph, or at least two photographs that I've seen of Dolly, who's an enslaved woman of the Manigo family, who they're kind of aristocratic, uh, low country family in South Carolina and Georgia. And during the Civil War, Dolly, is, uh, she, she flees slavery from uh, Augusta, Georgia. And when she does, the master, Louis Manigo, circulates at least two fugitive slave ads uh, on which he pastes her photograph to. It's a paper photograph that he, he actually attaches to the fugitive want ad. And like many of the 
photographs of slaves that I write about, it's a studio portrait. Um, but what was really striking was to actually look at the owner's private records. Um, and he's writing back and forth to people about Dolly after she leaves. And one of the things he says is the likeness is very important in such cases because she left with a lot of clothing. So he's thinking about how um, she's going to change clothes after she leaves, but yet the photograph is still going to be – it's going to allow people to identify her um, because it shows her face. So we have an early example of how slaveholders are taking up photography and using it for surveillance purposes. Why did this book need to be written? Why right now is this such an important conversation to be had? I can think of a few reasons why this book is important today. The first is that I think it's very important for Americans to understand that American slavery was not marginal to, but rather central to American history. And one of the key legacies of American slavery is anti-black racism. The second is that I think we're kind of in an interesting moment when we look at the the kind of intertwined land, the kind of intertwined nature of media and politics today. We see that um, social media has been taken up from all sides of the political spectrum uh, and used for various purposes. And I think to really understand where we are, we also need a rich history of past technologies, of past media, and how they've been used for political purposes, and how they've been used from various political sides from across the political spectrum. And that's what I'm trying to do to show that early photography really became a middle ground for people to make claims about who they were and what should happen to American slavery. Brand new technologies we never quite know yes. what they're going to hand us in yes, the long indeed. run. Yes, indeed. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming in today. Well, thank you for having me. If you want to learn more about Matt and read Exposing Slavery, you can visit our website at uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory for our show notes and a link to the book. I also want to let you know about a few other U of I research projects that might interest you. U of I Assistant Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering Dakota Robertson was recognized as co-inventor on a patent issued to the University of Wyoming. This patent gives both universities a new real-time reconfiguration method for use in large power systems. The method improves the ability to compensate against large electric power flow changes brought on by intermittent disturbances or even cyber attacks. In Moscow, U of I researchers were published in the journal PLOS One. The study found people who are skeptical of institutions like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and live relatively far away from a disease outbreak harbor less favorable vaccination views than those who are skeptical, but live closer to an outbreak. U of I's Adrian Marshall found that back-to-back -back low snow years may become six times more common across the western United States over the latter half of this century. This could lead to ecological and economic challenges such as expanded fire seasons and poor snow conditions at ski resorts. She published her study in the scientific journal Geophysical Research Letters. All right, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to The Vandal Theory. Come visit us on our website, uidaho.edu slash vandaltheory, for more details about the research we talked about today. Read our show notes, email me with comments, and subscribe to our show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And please rate and review us. 
We really appreciate your support, and by telling your friends about the Vandal Theory, you'll help spread the word about the wonderful research being done at U of I. I'm Lee Cooper, and thanks for joining me.